0: The Center for Research on Global Catholicism is hosting a conference at St. Louis University October 20th through 21st. This interdisciplinary conference breaks new ground and opens new lines of inquiry into the translation, transgression, and transformation of Catholicism as it has circulated globally across cultural spaces through the traffic and transfer of material cultures. Check out the program at www.slu.edu CRGC.
1: Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican— Five
0: cardinals have sent a document with several questions to Pope Francis regarding hot button issues. They are concerned that the synod could generate doctrinal confusion in the church. While Francis affirmed that matrimony is a union between a man and a woman, he suggested the church
1: study if there are blessings for gay couples. The Synod on Synodality opens this week, and just ahead of its opening, a handful of retired cardinals sent Pope Francis a list of dubia, asking him to affirm the church's prohibitions on gay marriage and women priests. We'll tell you what you need to know. Meanwhile, synod participants and supporters gathered in prayer this weekend, with the Teze community hosting an ecumenical prayer vigil in St. Peter's Square, and the synod participants leaving on a three-day retreat. Father Timothy
0: Radcliffe and Benedictine Mother Angelini led the opening messages for the retreat.
2: The greatest gifts will come from those with whom we disagree, if we dare to listen to them.
1: I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. early morning from New Orleans, Jerry. It is 6 a.m. here.
2: (laughs) Good afternoon from sunny Rome, Colleen. It's warm and humid here, and our three colleagues from New York have arrived, Sebastian Gomes, Ashley McKinless, and Zach Davis, and they will be with us to cover the Synod, and you will join us soon as well, I know.
1: Yes, I will. And, you know, in fact, even though I'm not in Rome yet, I do feel like the Synod has already begun for me. Yesterday was a long day of coverage and this morning we're up early because uh, the schedule in Rome is getting so busy that this was the only time we could squeeze in a recording. And that is how it's probably going to be for the entire rest of the Synod. So, Jerry, let's jump into talking about uh, the Synod, what's happening, You've often said to me, and I find this a really helpful thing to guide our coverage, that there is a Senate happening outside the Senate Hall, and there's the one happening inside that opens tomorrow. And you often caution me to pay attention to the real one, the one that's happening inside But we do have to cover the one happening outside. And so this morning, we're going to start with this dubia that was submitted by five retired cardinals. News came out that they had sent Pope Francis a list of dubia. These are these yes or no questions expressing doubts. Dubia means doubts in Latin, asking the Pope to affirm the church's teaching on gay marriage, on women priests. And then there were three other questions one on synodality whether the exercise of synodality is a threat to the bishop's exercise of power in the church, whether doctrine can change, and another on whether a priest has a right to withhold absolution if someone in confession is not actually intending not to sin again. So they ask these questions. Generally, these are yes or no questions. That's how the the formula works. Um, Pope Francis in his classic Pope Francis pastoral way responded in paragraphs rather than in yeses or nos. These five cardinals uh, decided they were not happy with that. They resubmitted their questions, reformulated to elicit yes or no responses. And then at that point, the Pope did not respond since he had responded already. We assume the logic goes. And so these five cardinals went to the Italian blogger, Sandro Magister and they published the reformulated yes or no questions and said, the Pope won't answer these. And in response, the Vatican published the answers that the Pope had previously sent. So that gets everyone up to date. Uh, Jerry, maybe real quick, we could talk about who these five cardinals are and uh, what their kind of positions are in the church.
2: Really, the architects of this, it seems very clear to me, is Cardinal Burke, who is now 75, I think. Cardinal Brandmüller, who is 90. German Cardinal. And then there are three others, Cardinal Sara, who is 78, and Cardinal uh, Zen, who is 91. And there's a Mexican Cardinal Sandoval. I know him. I know know Cardinal Zen very well. Sardinal Zen is not in good health right now. And only two can vote. In a conclave. But none of them, not one of them, is is, is a member of the Senate. And uh, a few of them have been always at odds with the direction that the Pope has taken since he was elected.
1: And Jerry, the timing of the the resubmission of these dubia is really interesting.
2: I think uh, it's interesting to note that they made this public through Sandra Magister, who is the blogger who also published, we remember, Cardinal Pell's famous last statements. They made it public when the Senate participants were all on retreat. Secondly, they, they published it on the eve of the uh, Synod. And thirdly, it came as no surprise, but actually they sent the, the first letter, the 10th of July, to Pope Francis. And if I'm not mistaken, Francis was either on holiday then or about to begin his holiday. But he, he responded to them.
1: The next day.
2: With several pages. Their questions were not in one line. Their questions were in paragraphs, and he responded with more paragraphs. And then they didn't like this because they want uh, a yes or no answer. So in August, they sent a second letter to him.
1: Mm-hmm. August 21st, I believe.
2: Yeah, August 21st. And he had just come off holiday, and uh, but most of the Vatican was on holiday. They sent him this letter, and they wanted him to answer just yes or no. Now, uh, Francis uh, has kept, during his pontificate, right from the beginning, saying, we must listen to each other. But they were not going down that track. They, they, They wanted yes or no. And Francis refused to be boxed into that system.
1: Right. And Jerry, the reason I think you said that uh, you believe that Cardinals Burke and Brandmiller were kind of the architects of this, because in the copy of the Pope's answers that the Vatican released, they included a scan of the original questions that were sent to the Pope. There were places for all five cardinals to sign. But only two signatures, and they were those of Burke and Brandmiller.
2: Yes, this this is perhaps significant. I am not doubting that the others probably shared this view. I presume they did. They, it's been verified. They had done this same maneuver in uh, in this at the time of the synod of the family.
1: Right, just after it, after Amoris Laetitia came out
2: in two thousand and sixteen. Uh, five cardinals sent in dubia,
1: and we should mention two of those cardinals were Burke and Brandmiller.
2: And but earlier, thirteen cardinals who had been participants in this synod, had also issued a letter and publicized it.
1: That was the letter complaining that the synod had predetermined outcomes, they said.
2: Absolutely, and there was much in it. So, you know, it's beginning to be a pattern. There's a synod called by the Pope. Some don't like what the agenda is. Some don't like what the direction they think it might take is. And what they hadn't calculated was the Argentine cardinal Sucho Fernandez, they are now dealing with a different head of the doctrine of the faith. They will get a response, uh, and perhaps more than they anticipate. So this has kind of thrown them off their guard, and I've seen some of the responses from some of the circle this morning, uh, saying that this was misleading, etc., etc. But the reality is, they are going to get responses. Basically, uh, we're in a different ballgame. These constant attacks on the Pope are now not going to go unanswered. By the doctrine of the faith, as has happened in the past.
1: So let's talk about the Pope's responses to these questions, because those made news in and of themselves. Pope Francis, in response to the question about blessing gay couples, uh, he expressed an openness to it, which is interesting. If our listeners remember that 2021 uh, declaration from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which uh, really upset many people, it said uh, that God cannot bless sin, and so there was. The blanket ban on blessing gay unions, it said. Um, in this case, Pope Francis is saying, you know, yes, we recognize what marriage is. It's between a man and a woman with uh, the openness to procreation. But he says we should be discerning whether there is a way to bless gay couples without it being confused for a sacramental marriage.
2: He said that if people come for blessing, one can make a prudent decision. Yes, this is a good thing, that this is possible. But he says, if one or more persons, he doesn't mention couple, he said one or more people ask for a blessing. So he's being very careful. And he said, but that is different from a bishop's conference or a diocese deciding that we have a formula, in other words, a rite, which would be a norm in the given situation, for such blessings. So it's a question. There may be possibilities of individual blessings, but having a, a kind of legislation or norm at the diocesan or regional or national level, he didn't seem to countenance that. He didn't envisage legislation like this happened in, I think, Belgium.
1: Yeah, that's actually the example I wanted to ask you about, because Belgium has... Uh, instituted this kind of policy. You think that that is not what the Pope's envisaged?
2: As I read the text, and we can expect further clarification, because uh, Cardinal Fernandez has said, he's asked the Pope, can I develop more the the responses uh, using some of the things he's said? So I suspend judgment until we see more. Uh,
1: and then on the question of ordaining women, he restates that you know the Church teaches that this is an impossibility. But he says, We should be open to studying it, just as we've studied the validity of ordinations in the Anglican Communion. So two really interesting, kind of newsworthy answers by the Pope there.
2: The Pope's answer was very interesting, because he said, uh, John Paul II has spoken definitely on this. But the, the Cardinals were really wanting him to say, you know, the final word has been said, almost infallible. They don't use the word infallible. But I remember at the time when that document came out.
1: This is 1994.
2: Yes, 1994. And there was a strong push from a certain sector for the Pope to declare infallible teaching. And this was rejected by some of the top theologians, and I think including Cardinal Ratzinger.
1: Interesting. So what
2: Francis says, there's room for study. So he's left a certain door open to reflecting more on the question. So the Cardinals wanted, you know, the last word has to be said. Nothing else can be said. Francis said, no, no, not so quick.
1: Which is very in the line of Francis in general, right? Like we said, he responds to these yes or no questions with paragraphs. He as a Jesuit, he believes that like discerning around a topic and and not limiting discussion is fruitful because he believes that truth will ultimately win out. And so he doesn't feel threatened by discussions of these kind of topics.
2: And then there's a third question, of course, which was Obviously, the first one that the that the cardinals raised was whether you can have development of doctrine. They are saying we have revelation that God has spoken, and therefore all we have to do is kind of keep that and pass it on. And Francis says, "No, no. History shows that we revelation has been given, but our understanding of it changes over time."
1: Yeah, I have the quote right here. So it's interesting in the first part of this sentence, he he just reiterates exactly what the Cardinals said in their question. And then he adds on, he says, while it is true that divine revelation is immutable and always binding, which is what they asked him, the church must be humble and recognize that she never exhausts its unfathomable richness and needs to grow in her understanding. And I wanted to point out the kind of structure of that answer, because it's the structure that he follows in all of these answers. And it really reminds me of what Timothy Radcliffe, the kind of spiritual director of the Synod Participants Retreat, was saying in his first talk to the participants, which we'll talk about in the second half of the show. He he stressed that, you know, there is this this idea of the Catholic and in theology, and he encouraged the participants to say, yes, and. And we see the Pope doing that in every single answer here. Um I just also want to just run down really quickly his answers to the other questions that follow this yes and structure. So uh, in terms of the question about confession, he says, while repentance is necessary for the absolution to be legitimate, uh, we shouldn't demand too precise and secure purposes of amendment, he says. so.
2: It's not a math- something mathematical. Really, he's allergic to this kind of thinking that everything is black and white.
1: Yes, yes.
2: A- and, uh, and he keeps coming back to it. He said, you know, w- we lay down rules, but he says, God is— merciful in ways beyond our imagination. Mm -hmm. God is forgiving in ways beyond our imagination. We wouldn't be doing what God is ready to do. It's as if they put the gun to his head and say, you know, yes or no. And Francis is saying, you know, that's not how we talk. He said, I listen to you, but you listen to me.
1: He actually said something interesting on this in response to this question, which was essentially asking whether the Synod is kind of overstepping its authority as a consultative body. He said that in posing him these questions, the retired Cardinals showed a, quote, need to participate, to freely express your opinion, and to collaborate, thus calling for a form of synodality in my ministry.
2: I was struck also by Cardinal Fernandes comment to a Spanish journalist who asked him about you know, these five cardinals. They've sent him one letter in July. He replies immediately the day after. They sent him another one in August, 21st of August. And because he hasn't replied in 40 days, then they go public and you know, kind of name and shame in, in a sense. And the cardinal says the Pope isn't a slave to their errands. They want this and that. And Francis in his letter says, I I normally don't respond to questions put directly to me. I mean, he would be all day at his desk and doing nothing else.
1: Yeah, but he says that he felt like it was prudent to respond in this case because the synod was coming up.
2: By his response, he's already sent some signals to the synod.
1: All right, Jerry, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the synod inside the synod hall, or in this case, inside of the retreat center and the vigil that happened in St. Peter's Square. Stay with us.
0: Experience the transformative power of sacred scripture. Join Dr. Mary Healy, a leading expert and world-renowned biblical scholar, in a college-level online course, Introduction to Sacred Scripture. In this online course through Sacred Heart Major Seminary, Dr. Healy will guide you to uncover the interconnectedness of biblical texts, from Genesis to Revelation. You'll discover how God speaks to you personally, revealing profound truths and unexpected messages. This course is for individuals who crave intellectual knowledge but also possess a desire to know God intimately. Enroll today. Visit shms.edu online.
1: What you're hearing right now is a choir of Ukrainian children who are singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. This was at the Together Vigil, which was held the evening of September 30th in St. Peter's Square. It was hosted by the Teze community. Jerry, let's talk briefly about this ecumenical prayer vigil on the eve of the Synod. What stood out to you about this?
2: Well, I think it is extraordinary and gives a broader vision of the Synod people have a vision of the Synod as something that just concerns the Catholic Church. Francis is making very clear what is happening in the Synod is of relevance to all the other Christian churches. And the, the Vatican invited the 12 main Christian churches and the community of Tese, which is a super-ecumenical community, organized it. And so it's making very clear that the decisions relating to synodality which many of the other Christian churches have kept, but which the Catholic Church has seemed to have basically dropped out during the last thousand years, but with the Second Vatican Council began to pick it up again, is now becoming part of the bloodstream of the Catholic Church. And this is going to impact on the relations the Catholic Church has with the other Christian churches. Because one of the big questions dividing the Christian churches was the role of the Pope, the role of Peter, the primacy in relation to the, the, to the bishops, to the rest of the church. Here, what is happening in the synodal process is for full integration between the role of the Pope, the role of the bishops, and the role of the people. Bishop Brian Farrell, who is the secretary of the uh, Dicastery for Christian Unity, said we have not fully understood the major significance of this. And he said the ecumenical gathering is helping to bring out this change that could emerge from the synod on synodality will impact how we deal, how we relate to the other Christian churches, and how closer we come to them.
1: And there's a sense that that this has support from other ecumenical leaders, right? Can you give us a rundown of some of the the VIPs who were there?
2: The number one in the Orthodox world, Patriarch Bartholomew from uh, Constantinople, which is now modern-day Istanbul, he was there. It was the first time ever that the head of the Orthodox churches came. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was also there. And he, I remember him, I asked him once what he thought of the Pope. He said, he's a man on fire with the Spirit of Christ. Then there, was the, uh, there were some other leaders, significant leaders, 12. And there were young people, young Christians from 47 countries present,
1: yeah, that was the other part of this that maybe got a little less attention. But since it was hosted by the Tize community, which draws so many young people who are able to travel to France and experience this beautiful music-based worship that Tize does, um, it was also a gathering geared toward young people. They were especially invited to this.
2: Yes, and, and uh, rem- remember that France has insisted that some young people participate in the synod and in the working document, the Instrumentum Laboris, for the Synod, it speaks about the possibility of a preferential option for youth. Uh, And so I I, I think it's very interesting to see all this happening. Francis said, let the Synod be a kairos. That's a special moment of fraternity, a place where the Holy Spirit will purify the church from gossip, ideologies, and polarizations. And he, he sees this Synod and that ecumenical event bringing us together.
1: Let's now talk about the retreat that the Synod participants have been on. Obviously, we aren't, and we won't see everything that goes on in the Synod, but the talks by uh, Father Timothy Radcliffe, who's a Dominican, uh, have been published on YouTube, and we've both listened to all of them. They're really, really good. I'm going to link to them in the show notes. Um, But let's just run down quickly his messages to the Synod.
2: Yes, he's taking them on, on a journey. Telling them what we have in common. He, he says, some of you are here, but uh, you probably don't want to be here.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: He said, uh, I, "I one bishop wrote to me and said, I'm praying that I am not selected for the synod. And he said—
1: His prayers were answers. <laughs>
2: the guy's prayer was answered. Uh, and But he said, but the reality is, you're here. Mm-hmm. He said, we're here. We believe in Christ. We try and listen to each other. And listening, he emphasized very much like Francis, the importance of listening, the importance of silence. I, I mean, the, the man is a gifted preacher. Mm-hmm.
1: Very much so. One thing I appreciated that he spoke about was he's really transparent with the participants about the fact that some of them are, you know, more aligned with one or the other political view of the church. And he is encouraging them uh, to. To hope together—that was the theme of his first one—was hoping against hope, and he talks about how, you know, even even Jesus's disciples had contradictory hopes, which is very much the case in the synod. And he talks about how, you know, we we are called to to hope together, to work together, to listen together. And then he had a whole talk on friendship, moving from the I to the we. So it's just it's interesting to see this this kind of movement through his talks from individuals to a group.
2: Uh, Absolutely. And he, he framed it all around the transfiguration.
1: Yes, he says that Jesus took his disciples on a retreat before they went to Jerusalem.
2: And then he said, when we go to the synod, we will still be on this journey to Jerusalem. And he said, maybe there will be suffering at the end of it. But I I was so struck by one example, if I can quote it. He, He spoke about how he visited a little care center for children near Baghdad. And he said, I saw there a child, and Nora was, I think, the name of the child, who was born without hands or legs. And he said, I saw that child helping other younger children, feeding them with a spoon in her mouth. I I mean, he gave them so many of these examples. He was moving from kind of theological points to real, down to earth. Really, I, I cannot recommend more highly to our audience to go and listen to some of these talks. And I think once you've listened to one, you'll want to listen to all six
1: yeah, absolutely. And I feel like even though we've been talking about them for a few minutes and giving examples, like we're not doing them justice. Just go listen to them.
2: I rem- remember also, Colleen, that there was a, a Benedictine nun, a former prioress, who was giving l- reflections, and a very different type of reflection, but very deep.
1: Mm. Are those published as well?
2: Yes, they're also. Awesome. Excellent. I, I think this is the great gift that uh, they've already given i think an enormous amount to the whole church with this retreat i have covered 20 sentences i told you before i have never seen anything like i am seeing today this preparation for the synod the pope says that synod is not a parliament it's not a debating club uh, it's a ecclesial event a spiritual event a prayerful event and that's how it started and if it picks up speed and moves along the same thing, then we're in for surprises. But maybe not news headlines, because the they're looking at who are we as church, what are we meant to be in the 21st century, and how are we to live our life as church.
1: All right, Jerry, let's talk very briefly about what's happening next. So we're recording this on Tuesday the 3rd. Our listeners will be listening to this starting on Thursday, October 5th. So the Synod will already be opened. Uh, we're expecting an opening Mass to happen in St. Peter's.
2: St. Peter's Square. But also tomorrow, on the 4th of October, which is the Feast of St. Francis, Laudato Deum, praise God. That's the follow-up document to Pope's 2015 encyclical on care for our common home will be published, and so that will be a matter for future podcasts, I think.
1: So, Jerry, we are going to have a lot of ongoing coverage of not only the Synod, but we'll also have a lot of coverage of Laudate Deum on America's website, a link to the relevant articles that are published before this podcast comes out in the show notes. Um, For our listeners, if you are not yet a subscriber to America Magazine, and you want to follow our coverage of the Synod, you can now get a subscription to America for $1 for your first month, which covers the entire Synod. We highly recommend following along, we're going to have a lot of coverage two episodes of inside the vatican per week a daily synod diary that's coming to your inbox if you listen to the jesuitical podcast which might be a good time to start uh they'll also have two episodes a week we'll be doing some crossovers with me and jerry to to use some slang we're going really hard on this uh coverage of of the synod and so we really we, we would love for you to follow along all right jerry we have one more episode uh, next week before I arrive in Rome. Next week, we'll start our two times a week production schedule for Inside the Vatican. Those Inside the Vatican episodes will be coming out on Tuesdays and Thursdays, so stay tuned. Jerry, I'm looking forward to talking with you really soon.
2: And look forward to seeing you in Rome, Colleen.
1: A few headlines before we go. First, the survivors group End Clergy Abuse unveiled a proposal for a new Vatican law calling for the permanent removal of any abusive priest and any of their superiors who covered up abuse. They cited concerns specifically over Pope Francis's choice of now Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez as head of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is the Vatican office that handles abuse investigations. Cardinal Fernandez had refused to promptly remove a priest who was accused of abusing children when he was Bishop of La Plata, Argentina. That priest was never tried because he was found dead in an apparent suicide just hours after a judge called for his arrest. Then Archbishop Fernandez presided at the priest's funeral. I have a story explaining the case and the concerns that some have raised about Fernandez's appointment that I'll link to on our show page. And former Jesuit father Marco Rupnik is once again in the spotlight. The Diocese of Rome has questioned the procedures leading to his excommunication and cleared him of allegations at Centroaletti, where he faced accusations of spiritual and sexual abuse. Notably, this report followed a Vatican meeting between Pope Francis and Maria Campatelli, a close collaborator of Rupnik and the current director of Centroaletti. Following the Rome diocese's investigation into Centroletti, Sister Ivanka Hosta, the leader and founder of the Loyola community in Slovenia, received a formal reprimand this past summer. Set Margenx, a Portuguese religious news outlet, claims to possess a copy of a disciplinary decree issued this July by an auxiliary bishop of Rome, Daniele Libanori. The decree mandates Sister Hosta's expulsion to Portugal and enforces a strict three-year communication ban with current or former community members. She is also required to make monthly pilgrimages for a year to a Marian shrine, praying for quote, the victims of Father Marco Ivan Rupnik's behavior and for all the religious of the Loyola community, unquote. That's amidst allegations of her abuse of its members. That's all for this week. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Ricardo da Silva, production assistance from Delaney Coyne. Kevin Christopher Robles is our audio engineer. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. To keep up with the latest news out of the Vatican, please follow us on Twitter at INSDEVATICANPOD. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also follow me on X, formerly Twitter, at Colleen Dully. That's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-D-U-L-L-E. And you can follow Jerry at Jerry O. Rome. That's G-E-R-R-Y-O-R-O-M-E. Please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Media. Just click the link in our show notes. It's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. And remember, you can do that for just one dollar during this month of the Synod. And if you have a little time to spare, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next week. Thank you.